With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No If you are a regular listener to the Sociology Show, then you could help with the costs of promoting and hosting the podcast. If you can spare even a small amount, then you can donate on the GoFundMe.com website by searching for The Sociology Show. There is no obligation, of course, and all future downloads will continue to be free. A huge thank you to all those that have already donated. Your kind gesture will help to continue keep the show going and growing. Best wishes and keep enjoying the show. Hi, you're listening to The Sociology Show, a podcast about absolutely anything to do with the wonderful world of sociology. Whether you're a teacher, a lecturer, a student or just taking a passing interest. This podcast will look at a range of issues from social class, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, religion, crime, education and anything else that sociology has to offer. My name is Matthew Wilkin and in each episode I will speak to someone working in the field of sociology and let them explain all about their own interests, their research and their experiences. So put your earphones in, turn the volume up And let's be sociology geeks together, eh? Hello and welcome to the Sociology Show podcast. Firstly, thank you to all of those who have made some contributions. It's been really welcome and it will go a long way to help to keep the show going. Some people have been asking what am I asking for donations for, which is a fair question. It's basically for the hosting costs. And because I'm producing so many of the podcasts, the hosting costs, the bandwidth that I need to be able to host them all is going up. Um, So if you can contribute in any way possible, then uh, you can go to the GoFundMe page and search for The Sociology Show. And as I say, I do really appreciate all those that have made a contribution so far. And so on to today, my guest for this episode is Dr. Stephen Roberts from Monash University in Melbourne. Stephen is originally from the UK, but has been working in Australia for the last five years or so. Stephen's work focuses mainly on youths and youth culture, and also the idea of masculinity. And his new book, Youth Sociology, has just been released. And so without further ado, let's go over to the interview. Hi, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to the podcast. Would you like to start by introducing yourself, please? Yeah, I'm Steve Roberts, Associate Professor of Sociology at Monash University in Australia. Great. Thank you, Stephen. And judging by your accent, you're not Australian originally? Definitely not. No, I've been here for five years. I um, originate from the UK. That's where I did all my studies and whatnot and came here in 2015. Brilliant. Thank you. And what's your your background in the subject of sociology, Stephen? 
So I'm a sociologist of youth, essentially, but increasingly, I've in the last five years, I've moved to the intersection of youth and masculinity studies as well. So I'm into tra- youth transitions, but also, yeah, um, social change and, and masculinity and so on. When did you start studying sociology yourself first? Did you do it at A level or something? No, actually, if it's if I can uh, indulge myself for, for a minute, I'll, I'll <laughs> tell the listeners a bit of a, my story because um, my I actually took the long route into sociology. So I didn't start studying it at all until I was at university, and that wasn't until I was twenty five. But I think what's been really great about the discipline for me, and that um, it, like it's the discipline that most resonates with and helps me understand the circumstances of my upbringing and in a way like helps me understand why it took me such a long time to to go to university I guess and yeah so if I can be a bit biographical basically I was I was brought up um, on a working class council estate and it was one of the very few mining villages in the southeast of England um, and in that place I'm the, I was the eldest of four kids brought up by my white mum and I'm mixed race Indian and um, white British but I was the only mixed race kid my other um, three siblings are, are white and my mum floated between being a single parent and then between that and in relationships with like hostile controlling and quite violent or well, very violent men so my um, and one of my brothers is profoundly disabled so what that, I don't say that for people to get you know the world's smallest violin it's more that I'm I had a, like, a lot of observation and experience of different types of poverty, of stigma and masculinist violence. And, um, you know, those, ex- those experiences are very, like, shape, shape us, of course. But it probably wasn't until a lot further down the line I was able to understand them. Because, and that was a, a lot to do with sociology and the people I met through sociology. It wasn't like there was an absence of um, politics and, and thinking politically in, in my youth, actually, because... Um, I was aware of the politics of race a little bit because I was part Indian, but but mostly because my mum, even though she was white, brought me up on the importance of the anti-apartheid movement. And I learned a lot about people like Stephen Biko and Nelson Mandela. But I was still super aware of classism as well because I was brought up in a mining community and I've got really strong memories of 1984 and the, the miners' strike. And I had an extended family who were miners and were into Marx kind of like verbally and discursively, but not we didn't really read anything about, well, I certainly didn't read anything about Marx because books weren't really in my life. But um, anyways, yeah, so I had this kind of like working class uh, upbringing was exposed to, to violence and poverty and, and class stigma. And then I got lucky enough or, and in no small part because my mum was really helpful in pushing for me to try and go to a grammar school. And I say lucky in inverted, crom- inverted commas because... Uh, I didn't pass the Kent test, actually, but my mum appealed and somehow got me through to grammar school. But my grammar school experience was was pretty rubbish because I was a working class kid out of place. And, um, you know, got mocked for my accent a little bit and basically didn't do very well. And I left school at 16, not allowed to stay on to do my A-levels um, because I didn't get the grades. So I went to a community college and did A-levels and then I spectacularly failed my A-levels because I was more obsessed with um, getting some money from my part-time retail job. And then so from 16 to 24, I spent eight years in the retail industry, um, mostly being a sales assistant, but then kind of working my way up to, to junior management roles. And then finally went to university at 25 and kind of s- sneaked in a backdoor route because I didn't have the A-levels. But what I did have was um, experience in a business at some sort of management level that for some reason the university gave me credit for. So they let me in. And then um, in the business school, I started doing world modules in the School of Social Policy and Sociology in those two subjects. And that's where I really found this kind of like capacity to think sociologically and was attracted to what sociology can do for me to, to think about my history and make sense of all those power dynamics that I'd kind of seen but never really understood beyond uh, just being an individual. 
that is a long journey together. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no it's, it's really interesting because I was just putting together all the things that you mentioned. So your upbringing, you must have thought about class and masculinity and ethnicity. So I was just interested to know, you mentioned Marx, who else you were reading about, who inspired you whilst you were studying? Yeah, yeah. So as I say, like my, my interest in race are kind of not so prominent in my in my writing and my thinking and my research um since but I've always been interested in race and as I say my um a kind of fascination with Stephen Biko especially before Nelson Mandela was was really prominent for me but um I've been mostly interested in in Marx and then inspired by Pierre Bourdieu and people's reworking of Pierre Bourdieu and that's that's still the case but um I think when I when I went to uni like I was never a a theory boy like I, I didn't really um, grasp sociological theory very well and, and I was more interested in the kind of um, empirical application of theory so but mostly through through people's work who were looking at working class people so the, the ones that I remember being the kind of like real jolt moments of wow this is like this is what it is to be a sociologist and think carefully about working class experience Beverly Skeggs uh, on working class women and Diane Ray on the experience of working class people in education was really, really pivotal. And then um, a bit after that, Andy Furlong, uh, the late Andy Furlong, who was a very pivotal figure in um, youth sociology, and I was lucky enough to have him as my PhD examiner. They're the kind of like real prominent people that made me think like really attached to the discipline more so than the big kind of theory um, theoreticians, I suppose. Great. And thanks for saying Diane Ray, because I can plug the show that I did with her a few weeks ago. So if people, nah, yeah. if people haven't listened to that one, uh, it's, it's really popular, actually. It's one of the most popular ones I've done. But I, I, can, I can imagine why. Exactly, yeah. I think people can understand why. Great. Thanks, Stephen. So let's get into your, your own research. So what I thought we'd do in the first part is talk about some of the research you've done previously. And then in part two, your new book, which I know is very new, part of the press. Um, so let, let's start with previous work that you've done. What's your main area of research? So, yeah, my, my main area of research is youth sociology very broadly. And it's become a bit more diverse over the years. So I, I finished my PhD 10 years ago now. Um, so I've done quite a bit and I've been lucky enough to be in roles that give me a lot of space for research, actually. So I've done a fair few different kinds of projects, but my PhD project and the first thing that I was writing about and I think one of my very first publications was about this concept of the missing middle in youth studies and I guess um, because I'm principally interested in youth and social change what I was kind of obsessed with in my PhD and, and just beyond that was this idea that the, the scholarly literature leaned towards um, a duality which was either young people engage and they do their schooling and they do really well and they get professional career, careers and so on or they drop out and they're disengaged and they end up being part of this underclass and I was kind of obsessed with what I was thinking about as being inverted commas ordinary youth um, and yeah and I kind of like was playing with this idea of the conceptual missing middle and it wasn't like the most advanced theoretical thinking but it was more of an empirical push for people to start looking at what happens if we're going to get a, a proper understanding and in-depth understanding of of youth as a as a social category then we need to look at kind of like the great majority of people that like churn through school they get on with it and they have some sort of work and careers afterwards it's not necessarily just these these kind of polarized um, transitional directions which i felt the youth literature was always kind of spoke to so I felt there was a gap there and that was the the main kind of um direction of travel for my early thinking you said the missing middle what what ages are we talking about what is key in terms of where people go in one direction or the other yeah and it, actually when I did my PhD there was it was a time of change of course because around the uh, I finished in 2010 but around that time there was lots of changes to the um 
school leaving age uh, over the over the previous few years. So, in my thinking at the time, it was like probably at eighteen. Uh, um, but actually, I'd, I'd kind of looked at people at being sixteen when people take different routes as well. Because certainly when I was growing up, you could leave school at sixteen. But by the time I, I finished my PhD, everyone had to be in some kind of training until they were. Um, it's just about to be the case that everyone had to be in some kind of schooling or training until they were until they were 18 so there's a, a pivotal kind of period I thought that 18 to 24 was like 16 to 24 is the rough area of youth that a lot of people have looked at and that I thought a lot of uh, interesting things were happening in young people's lives age 18 to 24 but increasingly we think that's even extended even further so that the idea of youth is an extended category um, if it's even a category at all some people might argue that adulthood is even the Kind of a, a category we can make sense of anymore but um yeah and some people will in, increasingly look at youth as being at least until young young people's 30s now but for, at the time that i was writing i was kind of interested in what happens at 18 to 24 that the what for previous generations had been that that threshold into adulthood yeah because people now often talk about a quarter life crisis don't they in in the past i suppose uh you know early 20s people moved out of home got married started a family or is that not, not necessarily the case now, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Like, it's still, like, it's, um, these things are um, uh, constrained in some ways by social forces. So we, we know that um, people of particular, like, lower socioeconomic status or low, um, working class people still move out more quickly on average, and they still end up in a couple of relationships more, more quickly. But it's, it's definitely delayed compared to, um, to previous generations. So, you know, 18 to 24. There's a whole body of work referring to, it actually comes out of social psychology, but finds its way into sociology as well, about this concept of emerging adulthood. So like the 20s being this this place that's like an extended experience of youth where people make choices and they um, can trial and make mistakes and all this kind of thing. And I'm not necessarily on board with that idea, but we definitely know that, yeah, the young people are not en masse leaving school at 16, 18 and then, you know, leaving the family home within a year or so, like they may have done 40 years ago or something. Yeah. So you mentioned there's a difference in terms of social class. What other factors cause the difference in terms of which direction people go in at that age? Yeah, there's a, there's a combination of things. So like there's the social norms, of course, like it's, you know, we, we often point to how people follow the, the, the kind of trajectories set by other people in their class category, usually their parents and their, their wider family as well. So if it was, um, we think back only a few decades, really, when relatively few people were going to university, that the, the middle classes, still middle class people go to university more than working class people. But the idea of that kind of extended period of education was for a relatively reserved few. And I think so it's, it's easy for us to make sense of working class life as being needing to get to work real, real quickly and, and money being an issue because um, your mum and dad couldn't necessarily or your parents or whomever couldn't necessarily look after you for an extended period of time. So when you reached the age at which you could work, you were supposed to go to work and start earning your wage and then eventually make that track out into adulthood on your own. So there's those kind of social norms around that. And then more importantly, um, the opportunity structures, I think this is why it mostly changed. The opportunity structures, they're collapsed um, from the 1980s onwards. So the possibility for young people to take that track, to get a job that would then sustain a lifestyle to set up home of their own, and or with a, um, a partner or whatever, or with a family, um, we're no longer there. So we get this kind of intersection of um, structural change and then people's attitudes changing at the same time. And sometimes that's flagged as, oh, young people, they, they don't want to move out like they used to want to move out. But I think it's, you know, obviously sociology would say it's more complicated than that. Yeah. And what, why do you think there is that kind of everything's being pushed back? 
people are getting married later, having children later, getting on the property ladder later. What, what do you think is the main reason why that's occurring? Yeah, I think it's like from a structural point of view is we can trace it back to what happened in the 80s with the collapse of the youth labor market. So, you know, there is just the possibility for being um, a young the possibilities in being a young adult just aren't what they used to be. The, the chance to get a, a relatively well paid job, even um, like relatively, uh, I, again, I'm doing air quotes because like unskilled work, I'm not really comfortable with that idea. But the, the idea used to be that young people could leave school with relatively few qualifications, get unskilled work, and that would sustain those transitions. You'd be able to move out of the family home. But since the 1980s, that's been increasingly difficult because wages uh, uh, basically haven't grown very fast. Um, the, there's been a growth of underemployment. There's been a growth of precarious work. And, th- and that kind of key economic kind of foundation that people need to be able to move out and then start a family and so on, is, is not, it's just not there. So it's not realizable. Um, and then I think, but in combination, as that's happened, we get this sense of people also hedging their bets a little bit and having and thinking a bit more carefully about, you know, um, trying stuff out, trying jobs out, um, being able to live with the family for longer because in fact the state kind of state support has been removed as well. So there's no choice. People either can move out and if they can't, then they have to stay with their family, um, with their family of origin. So I think it's a, a combination of things that have happened and in part driven by neoliberal um, policy and economic change. And then there's a kind of, corresponding change in attitudes that comes with it as well yeah that that whole idea of a job for life has definitely changed isn't it people fluctuate jobs every couple of years quite often. yeah yeah that's right and that reference point where you know it's probably not there for the contemporary generation of people who are at university but if you go back one generation they already wouldn't have been able to recognize the routes that their parents took as this you know it's job for life you come out of school you leave the school gates and you go into the factory gates and then that's it for 30 years or something that's that's long gone. What the world is kind of, you know, it's towards, uh, we, we understand it as being moved towards a world that needs more navigating uh, and with lots of different terms and so on. Because that's interesting what you said about what we define as youths, because if people are not getting married and uh, not buying a house or still fluctuating around jobs or traveling all through their 20s, you could argue youth is into your late 20s, early 30s. Definitely. Yeah. And that's a lot of researchers do that now. In fact, um, a, a great group of researchers over here in Australia, they, they've got this idea of the new adulthood and it's reflective of that, that rather than talk about people as being like delayed in their youth transition, they talk about how adulthood is not those markers that it used to be. And in, in fact, that if we think about the way we used to conceptualize youth as ending around the early 20s, because one would you know, move out of the family home, get a job and get a partner. Those things happen much, much later, often into the 30s and, and, you know, well into the 30s. So our conceptualization of youth is messy now because it's just, there's no kind of like uniform movement of a big part of the cohort that all doing doing something at the same time. I've got a confession here, Stephen. In Britain at the moment, they're showing Married at First Sight Australia. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's really Unlucky for you. <laughs> well, it's, it's really interesting, actually, because many of the people on there are mid-30s, late-30s, lots of them still living at home, uh, lots of them haven't found the job that they want to do yet, or they haven't found, certainly haven't found the relationship they want to yet. And in the past, they would have been considered over the hill, if you like. Yeah. You know, that was a phrase that was used. But in, in my mind, watching it, they just still feel like youths. 
Yeah, that's that's definitely. I mean, I don't know if marriage at first sight is reflective of a new norm, but they're um, the people that are on it are reflective of a, of a relatively new norm, which is yeah, that people are taking their time to make choices um, and. Like life is more fluid, so you don't have to make those commitments necessarily um, so early. But I think, again, the, the sociological thinking always comes back in and thinks, for me, it reminds me to say, like, what's the possibility for that, though? Like, are there possibilities to be, have nailed down a career-type job by the time you're 25? And, and when actually, when you look at the data, we know that's not the case because in Australia, there's, um, it's a good few years now. People leave university and it's a good few years before they nail down a graduate-type job. Uh, and that's a big change as well. Yeah. And how does, you mentioned masculinity, how does masculinity segue into your research on youth culture? Yeah. So it's a funny thing. Like I ended up like falling over masculinity in some ways because I didn't think about it at all in my PhD research, which is kind of absurd because actually my research was about working class men. It was actually about men who were working in the service sector in the UK who you know, yeah, they, they didn't fall into this um, dichotomy of being um, underperformers or disengaged from school, or they weren't super successful. And I, I didn't really think about them as being men at all until after my PhD. And then, and it came to me because I was uh, at a conference listening to someone talk about something, and I thought, oh, some, some ideas that translate into what's happening here, so I should pursue that line of inquiry. So eventually I started to think about what it is to be a working-class man and um, the potential for transformation of masculinity because of the roles that people were taking in the economy so it was previously theorized that young working class men hated working in the service sector because it was at odds with working class masculinity and then so yeah, a couple of years out of my phd i realized that that wasn't the case i was thinking like, what's going on like more and more young people young men are working in these jobs that they used to be described as being antithetical to working class masculinity so that was my kind of like segue into that type of thinking and then increasingly i was interested in all things masculinity from there right thank you Stephen. that's going to be the end of uh, part one in part two we talk more about your research lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, welcome back to part two of The Sociology Show. I'm talking to Dr. Stephen Roberts. Uh, Stephen, carry on telling us a little bit more about that idea on masculinity that you mentioned in part one. Yeah, so my research increasingly um, focused, like so I started thinking about youth and youth transitions and then increasingly thinking about um, men and masculinity because my research subjects were, were actually men and I hadn't necessarily considered them in relation to masculinity, which, as, as I mentioned before, seemed a bit absurd. But um, So I actually revisited um, as many of the men as I could for my PhD. So it was a, became a longitudinal study of sorts. And I, I touched base with them again uh, another couple of times. Um, first one in 2012, I think, or 13, and then again in 2016. So I talked to these men over, over seven years, actually. So I've got a good sense of like the way their trajectories have mapped out in their early 20s. And what I was really keen to do, this, this culminated in my 2018 book, Young Working Class Men in, in Transition. And what I was really keen to do with that book was demonstrate or document the way that um, young working class men's lives had changed, especially in the economic sphere. 
but the implications of that as well. And, and I think what I really tried to do was to disrupt this stereotype of the, of the young working class man as being um, automatically problematic, like automatically being homophobic and sexist and rejecting of all things feminine. Like that was um, the real message of, of my book. That, and it wasn't about like saying hashtag not all men. It was like saying, you know, there, there's still lots of things wrong with masculinity, but it's not that, it's not about being working class that leads people to, to crime and aggression and other forms of um, sexism, that that's uh, something to do with masculinity per se, but not necessarily something to do with um, working classness, which I was kind of really trying to, yeah, trouble. Because one, one of the arguments sociologists have come up with is this idea of, you know, crisis of masculinity. So because we lost a lot of the jobs to do with factories and mining and manual work and so on as we move more into the service sector, uh, that a lot of men have become disillusioned, you know, with their, with, with their identity. Was that anything that you found in your own research? Yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely an idea that I've been concerned with and thought about a lot. And um, there'll be plenty of other people who I'm sure may, may or may not have been on this show and might be in the future, but, but people like Michael Ward and, and Nicola Ingram in, in the UK also talk about this kind of stuff. And um, the, the key feature of uh, the crisis of masculinity as a rhetoric is that it's, um, it comes around, like it's been around for a long time. It's been around since the beginning of the 1900s and every decade or so we see new iterations of it. So we, we have to, you know, call it out a little bit. And I, I think it's, um, it's a go-to uh, language. It's a go-to set of words that helps people think through problems. So, some people say, well, masculinity, as we can see through the ages, is inherently in, in crisis. It's always unstable in some sense. And, and definitely every decade teaches, a, teaches us as a new set of reasons about why men are feeling um, at, you know, at odds with their masculinity or, or, or whatever. Um, and I think the, the kind of bottom line with that is that, that it, it's, not an effective, it's not an effective way of thinking through young men's lives. And it, it feels a bit like... Um, a discursive distraction, I suppose, that it, because it's not actually that young people's lives are, or young men's lives are in crisis. It's that perhaps masculinity is changing. And I think this, this idea that young people, young men principally, can't change and don't change and like always hark back to a, the glory days of masculinity is somewhat simplistic. I, I can't remember the writer, so I do apologise, but someone mentioned that working class men in the past you know, um, they, they would kind of take out their frustrations and anger in quite a manual job, um, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or something being physical, and now they're stuck in call centres. The, the number one um, writer in that area from the 1970s was Paul Willis, who, who wrote a book about why working class boys get working class, well, it was called Why Working Class Kids yeah. Get Working Class Jobs, Learning yeah. to Labour. But they, um, yeah, the, but the, the key there, I think, is that life isn't necessarily the same. And I think the frustrations around working in a call center are legitimate, but actually they're very similar to what Willis was saying. Like some, sometimes my view is at least that saying that people had a better time in the factories compared to what they do in the, uh, in the call center is, is missing the point a little bit. People were still, um, you know, victims of capitalism in the same, in the same way. And they took out their frustrations at work uh, in the factories. In the se- and, and in similar ways, you see um, the studies about um, working class people working in uh, call centers also finding ways to take out the frustrations. So the, the kind of resistance to 
the relations of capitalism are present over the decades. And again, I think that's something misleading potentially about saying, oh yeah, like in the seventies, all the men loved working in factories and it was all easy. When actually Willis's book was all about the way they resisted their bosses. They, they created shop floor humor as a mechanism for getting through the day. Like it wasn't the glory days compared to now. And why, why males? Why do you think it impacts them so much more than, than females in terms of uh, identity, work and so on? I think like in, in that sense, there's definitely been a change. Like um, we know that lots of working class women have always been in the economy for, you know, for, for over 100 years in, in various ways. But it, that's been a very relatively small proportion compared to the number of men. So when people look at economic change it does seem to affect men more so because heavy industry and those um occupations that were more masculinist than men basically worked in have um disintegrated or disappeared completely so the the attention to what men are doing instead is a really striking social change and i think that's why it's of interest we want to see if if and how men are adapting to these changes and that's but that's only like one part of it like some men older men now have experienced going through that change but young men now especially like right now the 20 to 25 year olds of today they didn't experience working in factories and mines and so on are very unlikely to have and then had a change and in fact this is one of the driving things of my book it's all they know like working in shops and service set sector roles is not so at odds with their sense of identity because there is no other option so they know the stories of their parents and the men before them that worked in the mines and the, in the factories and so on but the possibilities for that today are not real so young people i think locate their possibilities in what's possible not no you know not harking back to some imagined past and wishing they were in a factory yeah and you just mentioned young young people today 2025 that brings us neatly onto your most recent book your new book yeah that's right yeah literally just arrived before we started the podcast so that's good um i'm glad to glad to have it because there was rumors that it wouldn't get to this part of the world so it's nice to have a hard copy i just hope my library can pick it up in time to run it for my course which starts in about two weeks <laughs> right so, so tell us all about it it's called youth, youth sociology yeah yeah, so it's youth sociology. I'm showing it to the screen, even though no one will see this. And um, it's it's co-authored with a bunch of my colleagues over this part of the world. And it's um, it's a textbook. It's a bringing together of the field, and it introduces youth sociology as a series of of live debates. And I think what's really important about this this part of the discipline, and I guess there's a discipline as a, as a whole, but certainly my discipline is uh, my part of the subdiscipline is that youth sociology is a is a low consensus discipline right there's, there's lots of arguments and I'm at the forefront of some of those arguments and um and contestations and theoretical debates that we have and this book kind of brings those to the table and I think doesn't shy away from them as well as bringing together um decades worth of, of different types of important literature across domains such as young people's experience in education in work um in in in, in terms of their cultural lives and cultural identities uh, young people's health, their political engagement and their sense of belonging across a whole range of domains. So it really is very much a, a kind of something for everyone type of book. And I'm, I'm hopeful that it will be really useful for, for undergraduate students and beyond as a, as a primer for, for the field. Like it's a bringing together, it's a best based research book. So it's a, a summary really of the field um, in lots of different ways. And it's 
it's more about an introduction to the debates in the field and the core literature and the, the key readings, but as well as being reflecting on even those super influential people who were, well, the people that were super influential writers for me um, were all kind of like, uh, they were white, basically. They're white British or white American people. And I think what the youth sociology book is um, bringing in more uh, diverse, more diverse set of voices. So every, every chapter is now filled with a, more than kind of lip service to the discussions that happen in, so, so for example, in, in youth cultures, uh, our, rather than just think about the working class youth cultures of the 1970s that everyone always writes and reads about, that stuff's in there, but we also talk about youth cultures in Japan and hip hop in Iran and, um, and, and well beyond. So I think this book is, um, yeah, it brings together the key issues in youth sociology as a set of live debates, but also brings to attention um, different parts of the world and different dynamics like in indigenous people's experience of um, youth and, and how that contrasts to um, uh, young people who are white and part of the, um, the colonizer class, I suppose. Um, so there's a, there's a whole series of different things that go on in the book, but I think it's hopefully a very useful introduction for yeah, undergraduates, postgraduates and, and beyond as a good reference point. And do you mind telling us a little bit about how you gathered the research? So firstly, kind of what research methods you used and then where, uh, whereabouts the stories of the youth take place as well? Yeah, oh, sorry. Okay, so this, this book is, is all desk-based. So this is like a youth sociology primer textbook, I guess. Um, but if, if we want to quickly talk about methods, I'm probably better off talking about my 2018 book. So I had another book at the end of last year, which is maybe interesting as well. But my 2018 book was a, um, on young working class men's transitions, was um, longitudinal qualitative. So it was predominantly qualitative interviews for the first round, um, but also with a little bit of observation involved as well, like um, going to people's workplace and so on, but mostly biographical interviews. Um, but I guess where it got more interesting was in the second and third iteration of the interviews, like several years on, where I ended up, um, especially because I was at the other side of the world by 2015 for the third interview. So I started engaging in what at the time were relatively new modes of um, method. So communicating via WhatsApp and Facebook and, and other uh, so asynchronous methods where I sometimes send a message and I'd wait for them to send back. And sometimes we'd set up interviews like this, but over the, over the phone, but sometimes we'd interview um, in, in text, you know, so it would be properly asynchronous. So we'd ask questions and have this like long drawn out conversation that was still updating around interesting parts of the young men's lives at, um, at two different points beyond the first interview. And then in addition to that, I um, engaged in, with a proportion of them who agreed, I engaged in a kind of like a Facebook ethnography, I guess. So this was thinking about the way that they described their lives through their qualitative interviews was replicated or otherwise in their interactions with people online. So seeing these discussions of, uh, in, my, in my qualitative data, in the interviews, people were talking about, not all the time, but oftentimes a, a kind of a commitment to a fairer division of domestic labor and being with their children that I probably didn't necessarily expect, especially from what I'd read myself in, in previous years. But I was able to kind of triangulate some of that through you know, it's still discursive and perhaps it's still performative in a way, but to at least see the kind of presentation of self that occurs in Facebook and the connection and emotionality that they had with other men, but also with and about their children. So like often documenting when these men were with their kids on their own and, uh, and 
um, being very involved, I suppose, like this kind of notion of involved fatherhood that's often seen as being a very middle-class thing. Well, actually, my research kind of unpacked that this was a thing that working-class men did as well, but they didn't necessarily talk about it in the same ways, but they, they did get on with it. And similarly, with respect to their um, other parts of divisions of uh, domestic labor. So uh, there's a bunch of American research as well that kind of um, replicates this and, and says, in fact, was the foundation for my thinking here, that says that working-class men live egalitarianism but they don't talk about it but middle class men talk about egalitarianism mm. but don't necessarily live it because they outsource domestic labor to um domestic uh, servants essentially that's interesting because that that would kind of counter what some research is saying some research is saying that in dual income families that actually the female is still predominantly doing the majority of the emotional and domestic labor so are you saying that actually it's a bit more equal even though perhaps it's not discussed yeah, so there's no question that the gap is closing, but it's still a huge gap. And so women, without question, do more of the housework and other domestic labour and look after the children more. And then there's a qualitative gap as well. So there are different types of activities that men are more likely to do and different types of activities that women are likely to do. And the, the ones that women women do are more often um, constrained in terms of the time they have, they have to do it. So there's definitely an issue with gender. I think the, the core argument in this particular chapter of the, the book that I'm thinking about is that the, the literature often assumes that working class men are less likely than their middle class counterparts to be involved in their kids' lives and to, to chip in with domestic labor. But actually, there's a, a smaller body of work that talks about how working class men, and I think my work speaks to this as well, working class men and women and working class couples essentially have done more of that sharing because there's this notion where, um, you know, one, come, one comes home and, and looks after the kid when the next one goes to, to their shift. So the, the economic pressures of being a working class household lend themselves more readily or more readily than is um, often discussed to a slightly fairer distribution of labor. And I, you know, I absolutely take your point. I don't want to say that it's, it's all rosy because it's not. But I think the key is that we should think of working class men as being, you know, the people who are layabouts when it comes to finishing their work and not engaging with the tasks of looking after their children and contributing to um, domestic labour as well. Like it's not, it's not a middle class privileged angle, which is just um, these, these middle class privileged men are, are looking after those aspects of their life as well. That's interesting. So your research has shown that, that men would like more time with their children and more, more time at home as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that reflects a lot of other research. Again, of course, as sociologists, I think we have to be super careful about what's uh, the way people talk versus the way people act. We, those two things aren't necessarily interchangeable. But certainly the like, again, if we go back just a little while, we would find that working class men or at least working class men were situated as not in a way where they would never say I want to work, I want to look after my kids and I want to do the housework and I want to be fairer. And in fact, that very notion, like that discussion would have been an affront to masculinity. So where we are now is that at the very least, people are talking in ways that makes them seem more progressive on that front. Now, of course, the big tension is whether or not those words are translated into reality. And what, what we then see is when we, uh, when research talks to women, women say, actually, partner might talk a good game, but they don't actually pull their weight in. Yeah. The reason I ask that question is I'm just wondering with the the pandemic, whether this is going to shake things up a little bit. We've had a lot more people working from home, uh, time away from the office or wherever it might be. 
Um, anecdotally, a lot of my male friends have said they've enjoyed being at home, they've enjoyed seeing the children more, and actually starting to reevaluate their work-life balance as well. Do you think that could mm. take things up a little bit? Mm. Yeah, I, I really hope so. You know, like I, we've been thinking about, I'm sure a lot of sociologists have been thinking about this as well, but the early data because some people have responded very quickly to this. The early data seems to suggest that's not the case. So I also hear anecdotally all kinds of possibilities for transformation around masculinity in terms of what like um, that kind of nexus of work and home, but also the possibilities for reaching out and being more emotional with other men because we all realize we're in this kind of survival mode and uh, we don't have to just hold back our emotions anymore. But the, in terms of housework, actually, the, the emerging work still suggests that even though men are probably doing more, like the burden has actually fallen hard on women. So women's working hours have cut back, whereas men's hour, working hours haven't necessarily cut back. So they might be doing more around the house to contribute to that domestic labor load, but women are sacrificing more as well. So I think that's an important part of this conversation. It doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't be hopeful that, that gender can be reimagined in this kind of situation. It just means that it, we can't get too excited that it's been this complete transformation when actually, yeah, women are still burdened. Yeah, that, it worries me. You know, we quite often hear, hear the expression about getting back to normal. I just think now's the time to reevaluate rather than go back to, to set normal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I, I hear that in lots of different contexts as well, even at universities and stuff, you know, at my place of work, people often talk about like, why, why do we need to go back to normal? What was so special about normal? Let's, let's think about what we need and what we want and what could be the new normal. And I think that applies to gender as well. And I think, like, again, it's anecdotal, but even thinking about my own home life, like, I'm relatively um, egalitarian and, like, on equal terms in terms of our, our housework and childminding and stuff, uh, well, looking after our child at home. But I still think this has given me a possibility to reshape my work-life balance as well. So, like, I think there's productive possibilities, but I don't want to get too excited. <laughs> it will be very interesting to see where we are in one year, two years, five years, and so on in the future. And before we leave, do you mind telling people uh, how they can get in contact? Okay, yeah. I'm on Twitter, at Steve Roberts underscore, and I'm very happy to receive messages and chat to people on there and um am i allowed to give my email or we have to do that kind of yeah 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 so i'm stephen with a v dot d dot roberts at monash dot edu uh i'm very happy to talk to prospective phd students especially but anybody that wants to talk about um sociology i'm always super keen right and i assume we can get your books this side of the world you definitely can, yeah. Most of the publishers we work with are, are UK-based, so you can definitely get the books there. And please buy them. <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time today, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Thank you. If you are a regular listener to The Sociology Show, then you could help with the costs of promoting and hosting the podcast. If you can spare even a small amount, then you can donate on the GoFundMe.com website by searching for The Sociology Show. There is no obligation, of course, and all future downloads will continue to be free. A huge thank you to all those that have already donated. Your kind gesture will help to continue keep the show going and growing. Best wishes and keep enjoying the show. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. If you would like to contact the show or be interviewed, then please email the sociology show podcast at gmail.com.